Well, as John said, my name is Matt. I am the resident pastor in training at Pantano. Um, I am excited to be here this morning. I realized as I was sitting over there during worship that I hope this carpet isn't my constraint for walking because I tend to be a walker. I'll be all over the place. But we'll see what happens. That's more of a warning for the the camera people in the back. (laughs) So... I'm excited to be here this morning because I love to preach, and I love to preach because part of that is story-based. I love to tell stories. I love to be a part of stories. I love to listen to stories. Stories are something incredible to me, and I think everyone loves stories. I think there's something within us where when we hear a good story, we just get wrapped up in it. We forget about everything. We kind of just zone in, and we get pulled into something different, something bigger than ourselves. And unfortunately, I think in America, we've lost the ability to tell a good story. I'm not saying that happens all the time or that there are no good stories out there, but what I am saying is I hear of cultures all the time, and maybe I'm just ignorant, but it seems that other cultures learn to tell stories at young ages. They learn to tell stories much better and I'm kind of jealous. I wish, I wish that we would tell more stories. I wish that we would be a part of that process. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I, I say this in large part because I know right now that you guys are going through the Bible in a year reading plan, right? And right now, you're in Genesis. We just read about Joseph. We're actually going to talk about Joseph today. And in the church, this is something we would talk about a lot when I was in school. Pastors love to talk through the letters in the New Testament, or what we call the epistles, especially Paul. It's real easy, real clean cut. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. And I think part of that's cultural. We, we live in an age in which there's a lot of to-do lists, you, you, you know, check that off, check that off, check that off. But if we look at Scripture, most of Scripture, or the majority of Scripture, is what we would call narrative or story-based. Over a third of the Old Testament, part of the New Testament. And I think God does this on purpose because I think there's something to telling a story that you don't get just these rules and regulations, but you get something much better, something much richer. And I think in the midst of that, God isn't just telling stories about figures of his people, but he's telling a story of who he is and what he's doing. And so, like like I said, Joseph, as you guys have just read about Joseph, Joseph is one of these incredible stories. Now, it seems pretty much like a, you know, he just goes through life, we just do things, it's really easy to just read over it and move on. But let's take a step back and realize who Joseph is. Joseph is the son of Jacob, or Israel, who is the son of who? Anyone? (laughs) Isaac. And Isaac is the son of Abraham. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, these are the three patriarchs of not only the Jewish religion, but also us as well. 
These are, the, these are the men that we look to and say, we are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham leaves his family and his people to follow a God who calls him randomly, it seems like, out of nowhere. He, he actually probably comes from a culture that believes in many gods, and all of a sudden one God calls him out. And then his son, Isaac, Isaac is a promised child. In his old age, God promises Abraham and Sarah that they are going to have a child, and this is Isaac, the child of the promise. And then Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob wrestles with God, and he gets his new name, Israel. Already we're seeing this incredible lineage to who, who our character is today. And he is also the favorite. Interesting. He's the favorite son. Joseph is the favorite son of Jacob. Now, he is the 11th out of 12. At the time, he is the youngest that we start this story. And so, anyone have any younger siblings? I have, I have a younger brother. Sometimes... Sometimes younger brothers and sisters kind of do some things that really rattle us. So in verse, in verse 2 of chapter 37, it says that Joseph gives a bad report of his older brothers. That's it. That's all it says. It doesn't say it's connected to anything. They just kind of throw that detail in there. And it's easy to skip over that, and I probably have many times in the past, but I read it this time, and I realized, okay, so... Joseph is the favorite child. He's the favorite child, it says, because he is uh, Jacob's son of old age. So being the youngest at the time, Jacob was old. Of course, I could, I could see that happening. Now, favorite children, I'm not a parent. I'm not even close to being a parent. <laughs> but I'm told that having favorite children is a like, no-no that you're not supposed to have that. The closest thing I have to that, I was an RA in college, and my floor partner and I, we were in charge of like 50 guys. And in a way, we were kind of like parents, but we definitely had favorites. <laughs> I remember looking at him one day, and it was like, we're not parents, we're allowed to have favorites, right? And we agreed, yeah, we're allowed to have favorites, that's totally okay. I think it was kind of evident, too. I, I really wish it didn't happen that way, but it does, <laughs> unfortunately. So this is, this is who he is as the youngest son. And then Joseph gives this bad report. Yeah, if I'm his older brothers, I would be pretty mad at this point. I would be livid. There was one time my brother and I, I was in high school, so I don't know why we were chasing each other around the house, but we were boys. <laughs> and he somehow, my brother was smart at this point in his life, and got around a table, and I couldn't get to him. And I remember him stopping, and he looked me in the eye, and he just like that. And I, before I could even realize what had happened, my mom shouts from upstairs, Matt, don't hit your brother. <laughs> I was like, come on. What was his response? Ha ha ha. Gotcha. Oh, man. So I can, I can understand why Joseph, the older brothers, would have the reaction that they did. 
So you add all of this together. His brothers are getting pretty angry. And then on top of that, Jacob decides, I'm going to give Joseph a coat of many colors. Now we know this. This is a famous part of Joseph's story. And that's it. That, that's, that's the turning point. At that point, his brothers can't take it anymore. They're, they're just over the top. And then on top of that, Joseph gets some dreams, right? So in chapter 37, starting in verse 5, all the way to verse 11, this is what the story says. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Good way to start. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. So one wasn't enough, apparently. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Good. This is really good. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Okay. I, I would snap too if I was his brothers. And we see this happen when his brothers decide we're going to kill him. We're going to take him out and we're going we're gonna to kill him and put him in a pit. Thankfully, for some reason, we're not told why, Reuben, the oldest brother, decides to talk them out of it. He thinks, hey, if we just, if I can convince them to leave him in the pit, I'll come back for him later. Everything will be good. Dad won't be mad, and we'll be okay. But in the midst of that, somehow, the other nine brothers decide, okay, we won't kill him, but we'll sell him, because that's a good idea. So they sell him, ironically, to the Ishmaelites, who are also from Abraham. And Reuben falls to pieces at this because he knows he couldn't save his brother. But he still goes along with what's next. Maybe because he couldn't, he didn't have anything else to do. But they, they rip his cloak up, dip it in some blood, bring it to dad and say, hey, he was, he was eaten by wolves. Now at this point, Jacob's thinking, I will never see my son again. We know differently because we know that he was sold. He wasn't killed. But Jacob doesn't know that yet. And so as we move forward in the story, these Ishmaelites bring Joseph to Egypt. Now in Egypt, they sell, oh, wow. Apparently my sore throat's coming out. Um, in Egypt, they sell Joseph to Potiphar. Now Potiphar is a governor, or not a governor, a um, a high official in Pharaoh's palace. So already we're beginning to see how God is using something to shape what's happening in order to get Joseph to Pharaoh. 
He's already putting him in the ranks of, of Pharaoh in a small way. Now, Potiphar, because the Lord is walking with Joseph, Potiphar begins to see very quickly who this young man is. And very quickly, he rises to the occasion and takes over everything that Potiphar has, except for one thing, his food choices. Interesting. So that's all Potiphar wants to worry about. He doesn't want to worry about anything except for what he's going to eat, probably several times a day. And because of this detail, we begin to see that Potiphar is probably a fairly large man. If that's all he wants to think about is food, then that's probably all he does all day is eat. And so Potiphar's wife is beginning to see Joseph. She's beginning to see this young man. It says he's handsome. He's, he handles himself well. He has much responsibility. Her husband's over in the kitchen eating. And so Potiphar's like, oh, Joseph, how's it going? She makes probably several passes at him. Somehow, Joseph skirts all of them by having people around. But this one time, this one time, she gets away with it. Nobody else is around. She comes at him. We're not really sure how this works. If his cloak was already off because he was doing work, if she grabbed his cloak, something. His cloak somehow comes off, and he runs for the hills out of honor, out of, out of respect for his master. But she's so mad that he does this, and she sees this cloak and says, you know what, I'm going to blame him for this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell my husband that he made a pass at me and get him in trouble because if he's not going to give me what I want, then he's going to pay. And right at this point in the story, if you're reading it for the first time, you're thinking, no, you just were about to come back into a good place. You were sold once. We thought, you were, we thought you were about to come out of that, and yet somehow, some way, it got ruined because of this woman's choice. And you start to feel for the guy. Now, Potiphar, when he hears this, it says he gets so angry that he puts Joseph in jail. Now, I've heard it said before that usually in this scenario, he would just get killed. And the fact that he's put in jail probably suggests that Potiphar doesn't believe he actually tried to make a pass at his wife. But we're not told for sure. All we know is somehow he ends up in jail. <sighs> You're in jail. But the story doesn't end there. Once in jail, Joseph, again, the Lord is walking with him. And, and the the jail keep begins to see this and so begins to give him responsibility. And so once again, Joseph is making his way up in responsibility. And in the midst of that, one day, a cupbearer and a baker, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker of Pharaoh, who happened to be in jail as well, both have dreams. And Joseph interprets both of these dreams. And he says, if I am correct, remember me. And what do we find out as we keep reading? Joseph was correct. The Lord gave him the ability to interpret these dreams. Joseph is correct. 
And what does the cupbearer do? Nothing. He forgets about him. The cupbearer is restored to his position. The baker is killed, as Joseph predicted from the interpretation. And the cupbearer does not remember who he is. Again, we hit this point in the story where all of a sudden it seems maybe he'll get out of this. Maybe he'll be able to move on. But he doesn't. And for two years, he's still stuck in jail. For two years, the cupbearer forgets about what Joseph did for him. But all of a sudden, one day, Pharaoh has these dreams. These crazy dreams. Now, pause for a second. It must be normal for dreams to tell things in this culture because it seems to be happening a lot in, like, three verses. Right? (coughs) But it also seems that it was normal for people to be able to interpret these. Hence why Pharaoh was bringing so many people to himself. But nobody could interpret them. Nobody. For whatever reason, everyone was stumped. Maybe it was just like a really hard jigsaw puzzle that nobody could do. But somehow, at this moment, the cupbearer is like, hey, wait a second. There was this guy a couple years ago who, uh, who helped me out. Hey, maybe he's still around. So he tells Pharaoh. At this point, Pharaoh's desperate. He can't find any answer. And so he's like, okay, let's have this guy who's still in jail come and see if he can interpret this. And what happens? He interprets it. Because as the Lord is walking with Joseph, he gives him this ability to do this. And not only does he interpret it, and Pharaoh's like, okay, great, sweet, you are free. I will give you that. No, Pharaoh then turns around and says, well, who's going to take care of this whole famine business if this is what we're really headed into? Um, Considering you're the only one who could figure that out, why don't you do it? Okay. That sounds like an interesting trade to me. Yeah, I told you about your dream. Now I'm in charge of everything that comes from that. That seems like a huge switch in responsibility. But he does. He gets this chance. And what happens? He becomes governor of all of the land of Egypt. Now it says that Joseph in this time gathered up the crops, set a system in place, stored things away so that when the famine would come, Egypt would be in charge. And that's exactly what happens. Egypt has all this extra food that they've been prepping and and storing away. And all of a sudden, when the famine hits, people start coming and people start coming because they realize we have no food. And Joseph is in charge, and so Joseph is seeing all the cases as they come through, and he's giving food out. And one day, his family comes. The brothers he hasn't seen for years, the same brothers that sold him into slavery in the first place, show up at his front door. How strange is that? And so... We're going to go ahead and look again at the story and what it says in chapter 42, verses 8 
in the beginning of 9. It says, And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Interesting. Now the way that's said kind of lends me to think he hadn't thought about this dream for years. Or if he had, it was like, wow, I was way off. But all of a sudden in this moment, he remembers a dream that the Lord had given him. And his brothers are standing right in front of them. So he decides to hide his identity, of course. Like, that would be a natural response, right? You don't see your brother for years. And it's like, oh, you show up right here. You don't know who I am. Great. I'm going to keep you hidden. But it wasn't because he was hiding from them. Joseph did it in order to continue to bring them back, to bring who he now understands because of their conversation, he has a younger brother. He isn't the youngest anymore. Benjamin. And Benjamin, as we would come to know later in the Old Testament, Benjamin is the one who the tribe that comes after him would produce David, who would produce Jesus. But I'm jumping ahead. And so he, con- he convinces them somehow to bring Benjamin back. And so they come back. Jacob's so mad. He's like, if you lose him, I swear, you guys are going down. But somehow they convince him, hey, we're going to bring him back. He seemed, he seemed reasonable beforehand. So let's go ahead and bring him back. And when they come back, they have this feast. They'll sit around. They enjoy each other, which I'm assuming is not normal for anybody who just randomly comes to get food. So I don't know why it doesn't say anything, but I'm sure in their minds they're like, what's going on? Why is the governor of all of Egypt spending so much time with us? And we get the answer, and they get the answer, in in chapter 45, starting in verse 4. It says, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Whoa. Right? If I was his brothers, I'd be like, you are who? Oh, we thought you were dead by now. And he continues, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Could you imagine the guy you sell into slavery looks you in the eye and says, hey, don't worry about it. It wasn't actually you. It was God. Say what? I'm pretty sure I was angry and that's why I did that. But God, all along, 
was planning to use that to save Israel. Now let's back up, back to the beginning, back when he first had that dream. When I read that this last week, I thought of one scene in a movie called The Matrix. When Neo meets the Oracle. Anyone remember that scene? Now in that scene, there's a lot of things that happen, but he walks in, and at some point in their conversation, she says, don't worry about the vase. What vase? In his attempt to, to understand what she's even talking about, he makes a quick move, knocks over a vase, and it breaks on the ground. Now, immediately, like any of us probably would, he looks at her and says, I'm so sorry. I'm, and she says, don't worry about it. I told you about it in the first place. I'll get one of my kids to fix it. And in that moment, he looks at her and he says, how did you know? She doesn't actually give him an answer. She says, oh, what'll really cook your noodle is if I hadn't said anything, would you still have broken the vase? Ugh. Makes your mind melt, right? That doesn't make any sense. But I thought it was an interesting concept. What if God, being the great storyteller that he is, put those dreams exactly in the right moment to do something incredible? Now, if I were telling this story and I was looking out for my main character, I probably don't want to give a dream that's going to offend everybody he tells right after they're already mad at him for several reasons. It doesn't make any sense. But that's what God did. And what if he hadn't told him that dream? (laughs) Would they just have stayed mad and that was the end of that? Israel would have died we wouldn't have a savior. But no, God decides, hey, I'm going to give him a dream knowing he's going to say something. Now, people have argued back and forth whether or not he interpreted the dream correctly. I honestly don't care. Because whether or not he interpreted the dream correctly, the important part is he went and blabbed about it to everybody. And whether it was right or wrong, they are still going to be mad. And being mad caused them to want to do what they did. And when they sold him, and he was sold into Potiphar's house, God, knowing he would end up there, knowing that he would succeed, that Potiphar's wife would be excited about him, that she would try in something, knowing that Joseph would then refuse, run away, that would upset her, that she would make the choice then to tell on him, essentially, sending him to prison so that he'd once again do it, so that he would be put in the midst of these cupbearer and baker to interpret their dreams. Now, what if the cupbearer had remembered right away? Well, 
my guess is that Joseph would have gotten out of prison and gone somewhere else, making him not available for Pharaoh when the time was needed. But instead, because of what we would deem a man's ignorance, Joseph was available two years later for Pharaoh. And so then rose to power and actually fulfilled this dream that was in place. This isn't the only time in Scripture we see God acting in such a way. But I want to point to one other time in particular. His name is also Joseph. He's the husband of Mary. Now, as you probably know, Mary gets pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph is supposed to marry her. Super taboo. He's going to divorce her. He's a, he's a good man. Doesn't want to doesn't do anything to further damage her reputation. And in a dream, an angel comes to him and says, do not do this. Do not divorce her. Stay with her. For she is carrying a special child. And again, God shows up in such a small way through a dream. Now, if Joseph had divorced her, Mary still would have had the baby, but the baby would not have been in the line of David. Because of Joseph, a prophecy was fulfilled. And all it took was one little dream for him to say, oh, I guess I should stay. You see, I don't think when it comes to the sovereignty of God that he has planned out every single moment. Obviously, there are choices that are made. There are mistakes. Because we know based on who God says he is, that he does not willingly make mistakes. He's perfect. But somehow there's still mistakes, like the cupbearer forgetting Joseph's name. I would say that's a mistake. But somehow in the midst of that, God knew that was going to happen whether that's foreknowledge, whether that's simply because he knows the cupbearer so well, he knows his selfishness, he knows his forgetfulness, that he knows in that situation he's going he's gonna to forget and it will keep Joseph there for another two years. But in order to get him there, God had to put one dream or two dreams in Joseph's dream to get him to say something, to set a chain of events off in order to get him to that place in the first place. One last point I want to make is the suffering that Joseph endures. Now, it's common for us to think that when suffering happens, oh, you probably did something bad. It's a normal reaction that we have. But what about Joseph? 
if we look at Joseph and his life, there's nothing that tells us, oh, Joseph was doing some really stupid things, and that's why he's, he's getting suffering. No. Joseph was acting in all the right ways. Yes, there was sin in his life, but he was still acting in all the ways that he should have in order to gain the reputation that he did, and these things still happened to him. And I say this because what if sometimes suffering has nothing to do with anything that anyone's done wrong, but it's simply to move along the story that God is telling. And so with that, going into this next week, I want you to think about God as the great storyteller. It's really easy to look at these pieces of scripture and say, well, what does that mean for me? But what if that's not what we're supposed to do? What if all of this was given to us so that God would say, look at who I am. Come to me. Fall in love with me. See that I am a good God telling a good story. See that, that I only want to bring redemption. I only want to show you that I haven't forgotten about you. See that I am here even when it feels like I am not here. And so with that, write it somewhere on a mirror in a journal, on a piece of paper that you tape to your horn in your car. However, it's best reminding you that God is a good storyteller. And not just a good storyteller, the best storyteller that we know. And it's not like there's someone else who might be greater out there. God is the best. And we gain our ability to tell stories based on the story that he is telling. And as you think of that this week, allow it to seep in to what's going on with you. Maybe you are experiencing suffering. And maybe that suffering is simply so that God can continue to tell his story. Or maybe if you're like me, it has nothing to do with suffering, but it has everything to do with the fact that you are trying to tell your own story. I do this all the time. When I first got here in Tucson, I was like, I'm going to go plant a church in Phoenix. I realize now that my desire to plant a church in Phoenix had something to do with the kingdom of God. And also had something to do with the fact that I was like if some hero complex that was buried deep down in my soul that I haven't seen in years. And I was like, I'm going to go save Phoenix. Thank you. And the Lord has been showing me, Matt, that's not your job. Or when it comes to a relationship, I'll be like, this is who I want to marry, this, 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 and this. And I'm finding that the Lord is saying, Matt, you're trying to rip that story off of an old mentor. That's not your story. 
that's not who I'm creating you to be. That's not how I'm telling about myself through your life. Let go and let me tell the story.